Welcome to UCLA Extension's Business Insights with Roger Ternaden, where we highlight hot topics and underlying economic trends useful to you. We're going to change up the pace a little bit today. We'll overview our COVID economic recovery, which, as we've discussed, is presenting a most different jobs and investment marketplace than a year or two ago. But my mission for the next 15 minutes or so is to get you thinking about what's coming with respect to the impact of market psychology. So this is going to be a bit of a psychology focus as opposed to strictly a data focus. And overall, I will have to say I do agree with the old saying that forewarned is forearmed. In other words, if you know about a problem or a situation in advance, you will be able to deal with it when it becomes necessary. While no one can forecast future data sets like next year's inflation rate or the high point of our lengthy stock market rally, we can identify key trends and changing marketplace risks. And as I mentioned today, we're going to focus on the mass psychology impact on these variables. Late last year, inflation finally emerged as one of our key topics, although we've been talking about it for a year and a half. We've worked to forewarn our listeners that inflation is significantly understated in official government reporting. Two private research resources have been consistently brought into our prior discussions. One is shadow government statistics, and the other one is the Chapwood Index. And you can Google both of these. Again, those are shadow government statistics and the Chapwood Index. But we'll now add a third, the MIT Billion Prices Project. You may Google all three of these resources, and this is what you're going to find overall. The Chapwood Index of 500 consumer items tracks each item's price inflation and presents a summary that shows price inflation at approximately 10% per year for the past 10 years. This is the average price increase across 500 consumer items, 500 of the top consumer items. This is likely way too high as it doesn't account for substitution as higher prices move items into substitute items. For example, classically, if steak becomes more expensive, people move more to hamburger. Or if hamburger becomes more expensive, people move more to popular vegetarian diets, which is beneficial for many, many people. But substitutions are not really accounted for in the Chapwood Index. So that's sort of a a very high number. The second one, shadow government statistics, tracks consumer inflation, and they track it closer to 6% per year over the past 10 or so years versus the official 1% to 2%. The shadow government statistics index attempts to keep a constant market basket of goods and services and includes, as much as they can, substitutions. It has some other shortcomings. The MIT Billion Prices Project, which is really comprehensive, up-to-date, internet-focused, covering far more items, and but not as long a periods, comes to a similar conclusion that consumer price inflation is higher than the amounts reported in the popular government indices like core inflation and so forth. They conclude generally that consumer price inflation is running about 1% higher than the official reports. 
So there's a range. And the way to know what real inflation is, is track your own expenditures over a period of several years. But people generally don't want to do that, although there are surveys, and some of these surveys actually do include diaries of those who have. My point in bringing up the subject is not to criticize the official gathering, curating, adjusting, and publicizing the less than accurate information that is primarily helpful for politicians who seek re-election. My focus is to help understand the disconnect between the gross national product or the GDP economic growth reports over the past years and decades and our own feelings, and I would say the vast majority of feelings, that lifestyles have not been improving for the majority of Americans. This is particularly the case today when workforce participation is near a 1970s low that's 50 years ago, with millions unable to find full-time jobs when the economy, based on official reports, is back into a growth mode. So we wouldn't be expecting that. Once again, I'll argue that the measured economic growth is a result of price increases, not real economic growth of products and services. I'll put in a reminder that gross national product is measured as the total market value of goods and services. So it includes all price increases. So if we produced exactly the same amount of products next year as we are this year and services, and we had a 3% price increase and GNP went up 3%, it would only be a result of the price, right? And I'm arguing that that's been the case for many years many more than 10 years, where our gross national product increases have really come from price increases. And that's been allowed to happen because the consumer price index doesn't accurately or anywhere near accurately capture the price increases that we've been experiencing. Why should you care? If you have a full-time job in a technology-related field or a homeowner and have investments in the stock market, you may not care. If you're a renter trying to save for a home or college or retirement, you could care a lot. And the first step in any improvement plan is to recognize the present situation and then deal with it. Unfortunately, each of us develops biases that impact our decisions, whether we choose to recognize these biases or not. Now we're going to move to what I would call mass psychology. And I think we will all agree that markets are importantly determined by psychology. Many of you likely have heard of behavioral finance, which we and others teach in economics and finance curriculums. I think we would all agree that the financial markets are the sum of many individual behaviors, keyword behaviors. It is only over long periods years and decades that trends can be developed and analyzed. But inside these long-term trends are cycles. And as you've seen, there are many cycles. Housing has cycles. Interest rates have cycles. Most of all, most if not all of economic activity has fluctuations from low points to high points and back again. Inside trends and cycles, behavioral finance plays a key role. I'll give you a few examples of how economic and financial trends or cycles are impacted by bias, which is highly relevant for better understanding today's pricing changes. And yes, even the stock market's march to higher new highs. In economics and finance books and classes, 
we are told to assume that the markets and investors are perfectly rational and that market information is free and rapidly available to everyone. In reality, most of us likely feel that this baseline is too theoretical and of limited use day to day. Behavioral finance bridges these gaps. Behavioral finance assumes that investors are normal, not rational. Traditional economics and finance relies on utilitarian decision-making. We all know personal wants, feelings, emotions, and desires are often more important than utilitarian value. In brief, individuals have limits to their objectivity and self-control, right? Investors are supposed to have perfect self-control and objectivity. Not true at all. There are many thousands of industries, tens of thousands of companies, thousands of mutual funds. We need to recognize that our personal biases play a major role in selecting investments and when to buy and sell them. No cognitive errors are allowed in the basics of economics and finance. Decisions consider information on countries, political environments, industries, regulations, and many, many more variables. Investors make cognitive errors all the time. Remember long-term capital, which was the first hedge fund to be bailed out more than 20 years ago? Actually, almost 30 years ago. Many cognitive errors were made by global finance leaders, starting with the decision to invest heavily in Russian national bonds to lock in high interest rates for their investors. And that was just before Russia defaulted with a domino effect that threatened major U.S. banks because they loaned long-term capital the money to buy the bonds. Because mass psychology is a core component of behavioral finance, I'm going to say that behavioral finance is inflating the stock market to newer and higher highs almost monthly. What do I mean by behavioral finance and what do I mean by bias? Let's consider these higher and higher prices as normal rather than rational. Market psychology can better be understood by recognizing some of these key biases. And I have a link on the podcast page where you can actually see a description of these biases. Let's take the question, why is the stock market hitting new highs? And let's talk about the quoted reasons and what bias that represents. The vaccine cures the economy. And the bias in this case can be a loss aversion bias. Loss aversion is a tendency for investors to fear losses and avoid them more than they focus on trying to make profits. Many investors would rather not lose $2,000 than try to earn $3,000. The more losses one experiences, the more loss adverse they come. So if the vaccine cures the economy, that sounds great. And that's a loss aversion bias. Let's take another fact. 92 million millennials are buying stocks. That's a herding virus. Herd mentality is when investors blindly copy and follow what other famous investors are doing. When they do this, they're being influenced by emotion rather than independent analysis. There are four main facts or four main types of herding. Self-deception, heuristic, simplification, and emotional. And I'll stop there. A third 
response to the record stock market monthly is a fear of missing out. That's a hindsight bias. Hindsight bias is the theory that when people predict a correct outcome, they wrongly believe that they knew it all along. Number four, amateurs can beat Wall Street. That's an overconfidence bias. Overconfidence results from someone's false sense of their skill, talent, or self-belief. It can be a dangerous bias and is very prolific in behavioral finance and capital markets. The most common manifestations of overconfidence include the illusion of control, timing optimism, and the desirability effect. The desirability effect is the belief that something will happen because you want it to. Another fact or perception is that the FANG companies, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Google, they rule. That's a narrative bias. The narrative fallacy occurs because we naturally like stories and find them easier to make sense and relate to. It means we can be prone to choose less desirable outcomes due to the fact they have a better story behind them. This cognitive bias is similar to several others, and we'll talk about those. Economic recovery. Economic recovery is a framing bias. Framing is when someone makes a decision because of the way information is presented to them rather than based just on the facts. In other words, if someone sees the same facts presented in a different way, they're likely to come to a different conclusion about the information. Investors may pick investments differently depending upon how the opportunity is presented to them. How about Federal Reserve to the rescue? That's a representative bias. Representativeness, heuristically, is a cognitive bias that happens when people falsely believe that if two objects are similar, then they are also correlated with each other. That's always not the case. Hopium, the drug that gives hope is a self-attribution bias. Self-serving cognitive bias is the propensity to attribute positive outcomes to skill and negative outcomes to luck. In other words, we attribute the cause of something to whatever is in our best interest. Many of us can recall times that we've done something and decided that if everything is going to plan, it's due to skill. And if things go the other way, it's just bad luck. Interest rates will remain low is an anchoring bias. Anchoring is the idea that we use pre-existing data as a reference point for all future data, which can skew our decision-making processes. If you see a car that costs $85,000 and then another car that costs $30,000, you could be influenced to think the second car is very cheap. Whereas if you saw a $5,000 car first and the $30,000 one second, you might think it's very expensive. The anchoring bias. Foreigners are big buyers. That's a confirmation bias. Confirmation bias is the idea that people seek out information and data that confirms their pre-existing ideas. They tend to ignore contrary information, and this can be very dangerous in business and investing. In summary, behavioral finance teaches us that investors are normal, and all the above is part of this normalcy. This means that investors may be and sometimes are irrational. Remember years ago when Alan Greenspan, as the Federal Reserve Chair, coined the term irrational exuberance? 
He recognized this reality, and his calling attention to it had no impact on the markets as they continued higher and higher until they stopped, and they then dropped like a rock. We've seen this pattern often in the markets, in virtually all the markets, whether it be real estate, stock, bonds, virtually everything. We've seen this pattern. So the bottom line is no one wants to be fully invested in the stock market when the bubble bursts, as it always does. Always. People tend to hang on to their biases as long as possible. We just quickly discussed 10 well-known biases with reference to low interest rates, a climbing stock market, and an expected strong economic recovery. Would you agree that these biases are in charge now? Our prior 39 podcasts have focused on the economic and financial tools to help you evaluate your long-term career and financial plans with many examples of underlying trends. Regardless of biases, the basic data, economic relationships, and trends always prevail over time. All bubbles burst and generate large financial losses for many. So please do spend some time thinking about your career and investment risks during the bubble we presently are in. Despite the tempting mass psychology factor and group biases that we see almost every day. Be careful. We'll be back to discussing our economic trends next podcast. Take care. Be sure to email us at rtornadin at uclaextension.edu on more specific questions, which we will answer either personally or select as part of our future podcast. Hosted by Business and Legal Programs Director Roger Tornadin, this podcast is presented by UCLA Extension and produced by Jamie Moss at Studio 10960. These podcasts are made for educational purposes and are not financial advice. The goal is to educate and provide resources on focused economic and job trends with the latest support research so that you can make more informed financial and career decisions that best suit your personal needs. UCLA Extension offers more than 5,000 online and in-classroom courses taught by over 2,000 leading practitioners to help you get from here to there. For more information on this podcast or our financial and legal programs, please check us out at www.uclaextension.edu. We know it's about your life, not just your money.